Logically Faithful Podcast. This is Cal Dylan Swice. I appreciate you being with me. I have a very special guest today, Sam Shimon. Sam Shimon has been an amazing, incredible encouragement to me throughout my Christian walk. Sam has been a pillar in the area of Christian apologetics, specifically in dealing with the issue of Islam. I strongly recommend you look up his work on answering-islam.org. He also has a YouTube page. Sam, what's the page? Shamoonian. So it's Shamoon, S-H-A-M-O-U-N, and then you add I-A-N. And I used to do Jesus or Muhammad with David Wood, another top-notch apologist to Muslims. So you can find us on YouTube. Well, no. we'll do it. We'll do it. I'll post links in the show notes. Sam, I usually ask all my guests this question. Yes, sir. Why? Why, Why do you do what you do? What inspires you? If you can succinctly put it together, that makes you continue doing what you're doing even today. First, uh, as is my habit, I like to just invoke the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, beseeching him for the sake of his beloved son to cover us in, his, in the precious blood of his beloved the blood of Jesus cleansing us and our loved ones, keeping them perfectly safe and in love with Jesus. And may he fill us with the Spirit. So I beseech the Father to anoint me to speak truth without error and to bless this session for the glory of Jesus. We love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. Have your way with us in Jesus' name, right? Amen, brother. Now, why, why? do I do what I do? Well, I think it's because God forced me into this. It was in the 90s. I don't recall what year exactly. I was in my 20s where I ran into a Muslim apologist because I was, at that time, a lot of people don't know, before I got into apologetics, I used to be into martial arts and bodybuilding. Hmm. And I wanted to become a superstar. What kind of martial arts? I was doing Lama Kung Fu and kickboxing. Hmm. And so I did bodybuilding and I got around like 220. So I can't mess with you anymore. I don't know, man. (laughs) Right now, it's if I lift my leg, I'll pass out. (laughs) But my goal was to use that to become uh, like the first Assyrian superstar. You know, I used to like love Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. idolized Bruce Lee, and I thought, man, maybe I could use my physical prowess to become an Assyrian star. Well, the Lord Jesus had other plans, but the reason I mention that is because I was training a Bosnian Muslim on how to lift weights, and he would train me in boxing, right? Boxing, okay. So I started sharing with him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He got interested about who Jesus was, and his Muslim friends started noticing that this guy's like leaning towards Christianity. They didn't like it. They met me. They brought in a big gun, a top gun named um, Habib Raja, he's semi-retired, but if you guys are from the Chicagoland area, you can find him in the Muslim Community Center in Chicago, MCC. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he tore me to shreds, asked me <laughs> questions about the Trinity, deity of Christ, the authority of scripture that I had no answers for. So I sought God, and I just earnestly cried out to the Lord, <clears throat> and asked God, please, Lord, answer these objections for me, and I promise to commit myself by the grace of your spirit to make sure that no other Christian gets humiliated the way this Muslim humiliated me. Hmm. So that started my path into apologetics, and I joined the Answering Islam website in 1999, and the rest is history. All glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, all because of His grace, mercy, and love. And the Answering Islam website, how many articles have you uh, wow. participated in we have on over, average? Well, the site, I'm not the only writer. I've become the chief writer since 1999. Mm-hmm. It was started by a dear, precious, passionate devout Christian brother named Jochen Katz. Jochen Katz, okay. Yeah, he's from Germany, but uh-huh. he was here in Atlanta trying to get a PhD in math. He started in 98. I have, I think, over 200 articles, and the website in itself consists of over 10,000 pages, detailed refutation of Islam and defense of Christianity. But I'm not the only writer, although I'm the chief writer. There are excellent articles by excellent men of God, and as well as women of God, that you'll find, if you go to the main page, you'll find a link called Individual Authors, 
and you see the list of all these outstanding Christian philosophers, theologians, and apologists. Where do you draw the line and how with the major criticism against some of this uh, polemics of uh, showing the love of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the wonder of, of his um, affection toward those who disbelieve, as opposed to coming in and going toward the jugular against the yeah. ideologies that damn people? How, how do you balance that out? Well, see, again, it depends on the individual and it depends on <clears throat> the context. In other words, you'll find in the New Testament replete examples of the apostles and their companions, specifically the Apostle Paul, who would engage in apologetics and polemics. In fact, many people may not be aware of this. Some of the books of the New Testament, we believe written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are apologetic and or polemical by nature. I'll give you an example. Galatians. It's an entire apologetic for the true gospel and an attack on the false gospels mm -hmm. that people were preaching to mislead people. So to say that there is no room in, in your Christian witness or love for Muslims, for apologetics, polemics, is to say that much of the New Testament is wrong and obsolete because you find the very apostles who tried to embody the love of Jesus for the lost engaging in passionate polemics and apologetics. In fact, just read the book of Acts. Hmm. Wherever Paul went, he started riots and people wanted him dead and some of them even stoned them. For example, Acts 14. Just read Acts 14, verses 19 to 23. In one of his missionary journeys, he got the Jews so upset that they stoned him thinking he was dead and they left him for dead. But the brothers came and prayed over him and by the grace of God, he was miraculously resuscitated and kept going on doing what he does. So I don't see loving Muslims and engaging them in apologetics or polemics as antithetical, as opposites. Because sometimes you have to administer what's called tough love. And if you have children, you know that, right? Of course. Well, being both of us from the Middle East, a Syrian and me from Jordan, yes. uh, we don't play around. We don't walk on eggshells around this American business. Uh, people no. trying to be polite and politically correct. We just we tell each other exactly what Got we it. think. And we have no problem with it, at least in that part of the world. But now that you're, we're in the West, yeah. people are offended and getting their emotional diapers over every little thing uh, in a bunch. That's why if you're called to witness to Muslims, you have to understand the culture. You have to understand the temperament. You have to understand the context of the people that you're dealing with. Well, it depends on the Muslim, right? It depends yeah, on the country exactly. where they're from. Yes, and so that's why you have to remember this passage of Scripture. And those who are going to be listening, I pray the Lord Jesus will use my meager efforts to bless them and take them to the higher, higher level by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Paul says, to a Jew he became a Jew. To one under the law, as one someone who's under the law. Someone who didn't have a law, as if he didn't have a law. Mm -hmm. It says he became all things to all men, that he might win some to Christ. Now, he's not saying that he used deceit or trickery or, or compromised the gospel. It means that he entered into the worldview, the mindset of the people that he's reaching, in order to make the gospel more understandable and presentable, without compromising the truth of the gospel. So if I'm witnessing to a Jew, the way I witness to a Jew will be different from the way I witness to a Muslim or be different from the way I witness to a Westerner. So even Westerners who think that passionate discourse is antithetical to showing the love of Christ need to change that mindset when they're dealing with Muslims. They have to meet the Muslims where they're at because Muslims equate passion and vigor with truth. If they see you come off as timid, they think that you don't really believe what you have to quote-unquote sell because if you did, you'd be passionate about it and be willing to die for it. Isn't there some kind of human tendency across the board, across demographics, to talk about the power of speaking with conviction? Yeah. Even Jesus himself spoke with authority, and that, that gives what you're saying some power, even if it's false. And you know what's amazing? 
if you read the reaction of the Jews at the time, mm. they were astonished by, in the manner in which Jesus spoke, because they said he spoke with authority and not like the rabbis. Because the rabbis would be citing other authorities. Well, rabbi so-and-so said that, this rabbi said this, and blah. No, he said, I say to you, and this is what it means. And it is a sad state of current evangelical scholarship in that you can get an evangelical scholar and he'll take a passage of scripture and he'll tell you, well, it can mean this, and it can mean that, and it can mean this, and I lean towards this. There's no conviction anymore. There's no, no thus saith the Lord. There's no, this is what it means. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, unfortunately, we're living at a time in which we don't preach the way Jesus or the apostles did. Mm-hmm. They preached with confidence. This is what the text means. This is what God says, and you better believe it, or you're going to answer to the Lord. And let the chips fall where they may. We need that passion. Let them burn where we they may. We need that too. passion of the Holy Spirit yeah, once again. Amen. Or evangelical Christianity is going to be a thing of the past. Let's talk and get details here, sir. Yes. I would like to address three main issues with you here in this short yes. podcast. One is the Trinity, the problems with it, the concept of it, the definition of it, and the biblical defense of it. Secondarily, I'd like to address the scriptural reliability concept and the problems specifically that Bart raised by people like Bart Ehrman and others in his venue and, of course, by Muslim apologists themselves for the, the, quote, contradictions or inconsistencies in the very scriptures themselves, specifically on the nature of the divinity of Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. We can do that, yeah. And finally, of uh, what I say, that the Trinity, yeah, Trinity, the Scriptures, yeah. and what on earth does it even mean to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus? Oh, right? Yeah. We need to talk about exactly what those are. So let's let's go ahead and jump on these. Um, which one of the three would you like to tackle first? Well, I mean, the Trinity and the deity of Christ are interrelated. So uh, to talk about the deity of Christ is to talk about the Trinity. Talk about the Trinity encompasses discussing the deity of Christ. So then let's begin with the definition. What is the Trinity? Yeah, here's here's the thing. Because we're coming from from a 21st century perspective, we're using language that is not identical to the language in which we find the scriptures composing. For example, the Old Testament written in Hebrew to Hebrew Hebrew speaking people that had certain way of thinking unique characteristics that define their culture. New Testament, written in Greek. Now, there are parts of the Old Testament written in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. So, right away, any definition I give, I give to the Trinity is going to be post-biblical language, right? So, post-biblical language? Yep. Yeah, so, I just want to be clear that I'm going to be using post-biblical language that accurately codifies in a succinct form what the Bible teaches as a whole, right? You with me there, right? Yes. Okay, so... Classically, Trinitarians speak of the one infinite being of God, that God is one infinite being, but this being of God eternally exists in three eternally distinct persons, or if you want to use, in three eternally distinct relationships. Would you say the triunity of God? Yes, three and one, one and three. Now, you don't need to use that language in order to prove that this is what the Bible teaches, that there is one God, but there is three Again, either eternal relationships or persons, because even the term person, if you don't define it, can miscommunicate. Of course. Because if I say person, you're thinking of a flesh and blood, finite human creature. Right. That's not how we we use the term person in reference to the members of the Godhead. So, basically, in a nutshell, this is why we're Trinitarians, because the Bible teaches there's one eternal, uncreated God, and yet it also identifies the Father as God, the Son, whom we know as Jesus of Nazareth, as God, and the Holy Spirit as God, and it also goes out of its way to show that these three are not the same self. They're not a single person assuming different roles or modes or manifestations. They're actually 
three distinct entities in intimate love and communion with one another, who have intimate fellowship with one another. So when you take those three components, you're, dri you're driven to the logical conclusion of the Trinity. So we would say three who's and one what. Yeah, that's another way of looking at it. Now, that's more of a Western perspective. If you actually look at it from the Eastern Orthodox perspective, the Russian Orthodox, Greek mm -hmm. Orthodox, they like to emphasize what's known as the monarchy of the Father, that it's God is not a what, a substance shared by three persons, mm -hmm. but that God is actually the person of the Father, and it's His nature that the Son and the Spirit eternally partake of and share in, and inseparably so. So in Western understanding and definitions of the Trinity, we speak of God as a substance shared by three eternal persons. Eastern Orthodoxy likes to maintain the personal identity of God, that God is the Father, the Father is God, and it's His eternal essence that the Son and the Spirit inseparably and eternally partake in. Is this one the old split in 1050 of the Son yeah. coming from... That was one of the reasons, yeah. 1050 the yeah. the they had a problem with the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son because that would make the deity of the Spirit originate from... Not a single source, but a joint source, Father and Son. Filioclause? Yeah, filioque, yeah, they call it. But to them, in order to maintain the unity of the Godhead, the essence of God has to be grounded in the Father. Right. That's, well, that's, that's, that's again. That's, okay. uh, anyway, yeah, my whole point is the Bible teaches the Father is God, Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They're not three gods, but they're not the same person. But they're one substance that yes. makes that being. They, they possess all the essential attributes of mm -hmm. what makes God, God. In a lot of the Arab churches in the Middle East, even here, some of us start our services with the following. Bismillah wal-ibn ruh al-Qudus ya ilah. Yes, yes. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and our God is one. Yes, right, yes. This is in contrast to, of course, the Muslim claim that Christians follow three gods. Yes, yes. And actually the Quranic claim as well. Um, we want to touch on that a little bit. Yes. But let's go back to the scripture here. Yes. So what scriptural proofs can you give, just in summary here, yes. that show that the, the Trinity is itself scriptural, not yes. post-scriptural via uh, Council of Nicaea or other councils yes. what, after that? I, you won't find any debates regarding the person of the Father. Across the board, everyone agrees that the Father is God. So I don't need to demonstrate that. What you'd have to demonstrate is that the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the Holy Spirit they too are fully essentially God, possessing all the essential attributes of deity. Now, you got 66 books to call from to show that. I can give you an avalanche of evidence for that assertion. But again, for the sake of brevity... We can put some things in the show notes for people to look yes, into, but for brevity. Be, yeah. Yeah, for brevity, I mean, you, can, you need to demonstrate, number one, the Holy Spirit is not just fully God, but also personal, meaning he possesses the attributes of personhood. He's a personality, a person. Because you have groups who admit the Spirit is eternal, Separable from God, uncreated, but that—that's because the Spirit is God's active force or His presence. So it's not a distinct person in relationship with the Father. So passages that would come to mind would be like Isaiah sixty-three ten, where it says, "But they rebelled and grieved this Holy Spirit." You can't grieve something that's impersonal. For the Spirit to be grieved, He has to have emotions, and if He has—if He has emotions, then He's a person. And what about his essential deity? Well, right. you can go to 2 Samuel 23, 2-3, and David says, The Spirit of Yahweh, the Lord, <clears throat> spoke by me. Now notice, the Spirit speaks again, and he uses David as his mouthpiece. His word is on my tongue. 
So David is claiming that the Psalms he wrote, he did so by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was speaking through him and giving him the words to write down. Then he says something interesting in verse 3. Mm. The God of Israel spoke, and the rock of Israel said. So now notice, the Holy Spirit speaking through David is the God of Israel speaking. Mm. So you have the Spirit speaking, he's personal, right. and when he speaks, it's the God of Israel speaking. And then you have Psalm 104.30, he goes, But when you send your spirit, they are renewed, right? They are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So the Holy Spirit creates, regenerates, and recreates, and resurrects. So that's the attributes again, of God, the attributes right of deity. Yeah, and, that's just, I'm, and that was just the Old Testament. Right. Or you can go to Job 33, verse 4. It says, The Spirit of God has made me. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So you can demonstrate the deity of the Holy Spirit and His personhood, by just culling through the Old and New Testaments, and there is an avalanche of evidence to show that he's not simply an active force, nor is he a creature. He's eternally God, distinct from the Father and the Son. Amazing. Yes. So we have the, the Holy Spirit being a person, a personage of God, the very um, uh, one who would take on the characteristics of Godhead, or Godness, yeah. if I may use the word Godhead. Yeah. Um, so what about... Jesus, Jesus Christ, is Christ himself. Now, when you talk about Christ, you have to keep in mind he's not just God, he's also man. So most of the objections leveled against the deity of Christ is because our Lord experienced genuine human limitations. He truly became a flesh and blood human being. He was truly conceived as a human being in the womb of his blessed mother while she was a virgin, the power of the Holy Spirit. He experienced genuine human limitations. So you will notice that most of the attacks against the deity of Christ are attacks that focus primarily on the human limitations that he experienced when he became flesh. Exactly. How could Christ um, yeah. use the bathroom? How could God go to sleep? Go to sleep? How, how could he, he make a mistake of stump his thumb? Yeah. Um, right. So or, we need to emphasize that as Christians. I don't think we emphasize that enough, hmm. that Jesus is truly human to the core. He possesses every essential human attribute, whatever makes man man, with the exception of sin. He's like Adam before the fall. Another thing we need to emphasize is that we believe that Christ is still man in heaven, albeit a glorified man. And a lot of Christians tend to either not know that or not emphasize that enough. Enough. Jesus is still essentially human, albeit a glorified human with an indestructible, immortal physical body. So he's still man. So we need to emphasize that when we're communicating the deity of Christ, because those objections are going to come up. Well, if Jesus is God, how come he didn't know the day or hour? Right. Well, because in his waking human consciousness and his human mind, it's impossible for a human mind to be able to retain the full omniscience of God that Christ would have by virtue of being also God in essence. Let me stop you there, because sometimes in scriptures it does say Christ knowing the heart of all men, showing his oh, yes. omniscience. Yes, it does. So there are times when the scriptures do emphasize that and point out. Those are the passages. So aren't you turn. picking and choosing where Christ is omniscient no, and where he's not? If you're going to let the scriptures dictate your theology and not your theology dictate what the scriptures mean, that's precisely why we believe in the incarnation. He's the God-man. Mm. He's truly God, and therefore possesses all the essential divine attributes that make God what he is, but he's also truly human. It's not either or, it's both and. And unless you let the scripture speak, <clears throat> then you're going to force one set of passages to agree with another set of passages, or you're going to hijack the set of passages in order to agree with those passages that you deem to be primary, and then you're going to create contradictions when there are none. If you just let the Bible speak, 
in its totality, as a whole, Christ is fully God, fully human, truly God, truly human, two natures and one person. These natures did not mix or fuse into each other. They remain distinct, but perfectly united. One so person. that paradox is something we have to... You got to. Except there's a paradox there. It's, I mean, that's life, right? Yeah, I mean, life is a paradox. Creation in itself is a paradox. The human organism, the human mechanism is a paradox. How the human mind works is a paradox to us, because we can't fully comprehend. How much more an infinite mind? Wow, it's amazing. If you're dealing with an infinite yeah. mind, then you expect that finite, temporal, fallen, imperfect creatures cannot fully take in this infinite mind. Some of the rabbinic debates in the past have been arguing, what is the reason the divine made man? And the the the, yeah. the, the subjugations and the innuendos and the theories are manifold. One of them is, God gave man something he did not have. He made man with limits. But to take the, that concept of making a man an unlimited being and that limitedness, he yeah. breaks, he molds, he grows, he develops, he becomes another person. But God Himself becoming one of them? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's astonishing. And it's interesting they say that God doesn't have limits. It depends on what you mean, because God is immutably God. He's always been God, and He can't be otherwise. So there are certain characteristics of God, or there are certain things that God cannot do by virtue of who He is. So even that, to say that God has no limits, well, no, I mean, can God wipe himself out of existence? Can no. God commit suicide, right? Right, can, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift? I mean, <laughs> yeah, they have a loving objection out there, yeah. yeah. So, so the whole point is... Can he make no. so many pancakes he can't eat, or a video yeah. game he can't beat? Yeah, <laughs> so, that, 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 yeah, yeah. so that point yeah. is, yes, God is God essentially, eternally, immutably. But because he's God, that means, to be God means he's he's not something else. So whatever whatever God is by nature, that's what he is immutably, unchangeably so. Okay. And because of that nature, it's not that he's so much limited, but that's who he is. He can't be otherwise. One of my favorite passages is in Revelation 2, where Christ himself says, I am the Alpha and the, big, and the Omega, the beginning and the end, yeah. one who died and came back. Yes, yes. Now, who would that fit other than God himself? That's one of my favorite deity passages in Scripture. Do you have your own? What, yeah, what, well, what would you point to? I would, if I'm, depending on who I'm dealing with, if I'm dealing with a Muslim, Number one, they'll they'll call into question any book of the Bible that you quote. So that's that's a given. So you yeah, have to right. defend then the historicity, preservation, authenticity of the scriptures. But with that said, the passage that you can use both for a Muslim and a Jehovah Witness, not just a Muslim, is Revelation 1, 17, 18, which is found in chapter 2, verse 8, which you're alluding to. In Revelation 1, 17, it says, When I saw him, this is John speaking, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand upon me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, why is that interesting? Because in Isaiah 44, verse 6 of the Old Testament, Isaiah 48, verse 12, and in the Quran, chapter 57, verse 3 of the Quran, Isaiah 44, 6, Isaiah 48, 12, and chapter 57, verse 3 of the Quran, it says that God, or Jehovah in the Old Testament, Allah in the Quran, He is the first and the last. The Arabic is Al-Awwal Wal-Akhir, the first and last. Now, you ask a Jehovah Witness, you ask a Muslim, can anyone other than God be the first and last? They'll say no. Only God can be the first and the last because this speaks to his timeless transcendence and eminence. Meaning, by nature he's uncreated, and because of that he's been there from the very start of creation. And because he's not bound to time, he continues to remain with creation to the very end of the age. Only a being that's timeless, eternal, <clears throat> can do that. So first and last speaks to God's uncreated, eternal, timeless existence. And... His eminence in that he's present and active with creation till the very end. Amazing. Huh? So now, yeah. when you show them that, you read Revelation 117 again. Uh -huh. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand upon me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and last. And without fail, when I ask this question, 
either the Jehovah's Witness or the Muslim, I ask the question, who's speaking? They'll say, if it's a Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah, because we just read Isaiah. Mm -hmm. If it's a Muslim, they'll say Allah. Then I said, okay, now let's read the next verse. I'm the living one. Mm. I was dead, and behold, I live forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. There he Amen. Is. So then I say, when did Jehovah die? When did Allah die? <laughs> and they're astounded because I say, well, no, Allah can't die. Jehovah can't die. I go, well, you just admit this is a title that belongs to the true God. Only the true God can claim this. So the true God said he did die, now lives forevermore. Amazing. That's Jesus. Wow. That is a powerful And this is the ultimate paradox too, isn't it? The divine yeah. one becoming dead and raising from again. The and there's the ever-living ever living one. There's a par- there it is, yeah. the scripture. Because he's not just God, he's also the God-man. So we got to emphasize that. He's the God-man. And he, and he still is? Of course. He, he can't be otherwise if you believe in the resurrection of God. Let me ask you, Sam, something that's troubled me for years. Yes. The aseity of God, the unchangeable very nature of God, one of the attributes of God. Yes. God does not change. He stays the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews. Yeah. But go back to this. If God becoming a man, entering into a woman, going through the embryonic process, fetus, embryo, bearing yes. child, if that's not changing the divine nature, then I don't know what is. Because you have the wrong definition of what we mean by change, biblically speaking. Go for, for example, it. God being unchangeable doesn't mean he's immobile or immovable, right? He's not the unmoved mover of the Greek philosophers. The unchangeableness of God refers that's to... That's what Aristotle attributes. called him, by the way. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. But that's not a biblical concept in the sense that our God personally interacts with creation. So to define change to me that God cannot <clears throat> enter into time or experience moments of time as they unfold, that's not a biblical definition. By unchanging, we mean that God in his essential attributes, his attributes are constant. He doesn't become more powerful one day and less powerful the next day. But isn't becoming a man or taking the nature of a man changing in the Not if his nature? omnipotence is still fully intact and he still possesses it. Those are his properties. When you're talking about properties, talking about you're talking about what properties? Well, the substance is composed of the properties. Right. Well, right? You have a substance with your unchangeable substratum within underneath, so and the properties what, are things outside of that. What makes the substance what it is? The essential attributes that right. it possesses, right? Mm-hmm. So when I speak of the substance of God, it's okay, define it. Well, God's substance entails that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., etc., etc. So, again, not to split hairs or get into semantics, the whole point is the unchangeableness of God has nothing to do with God's inability or the impossibility of God entering into creation or becoming flesh. That's not the biblical definition. The biblical definition, if you look at any passage you cite, even you cited Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that's the same author who told you that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Right. So he saw no problem with Christ remaining constant and the same, with Christ changing in a profound way and experiencing what it's like to obey God in the face of suffering. So that means your definition has to comport with their understanding, not make their understanding comport with your philosophical definition. Amen. So again, Hebrews 1, same author, 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, he ascribes to Jesus Christ a psalm, Psalm 102, verses 25-27, which speaks of the Lord Jehovah being the unchangeable creator and sustainer of all things. Hmm. And he ascribes it to the Son, and he says that they will all wear out, but you remain the same. Like a garment, you'll roll them up, they will fade away, but your years have no end. Yeah. So he affirms that Christ, from the perspective of creation, when Christ created all things, he remains the same forever. But then that same author says that he became... <clears throat> He became flesh 
And he learned obedience through suffering. So that means he experienced change in some sense. Mm. So he didn't see it as being contradictory. Another he saw paradox. it as both and. Right. Because his definition of Christ's immutability or God's immutability does not negate God's ability to enter into time and become flesh and experience genuine human limitations. By unchangeability means that God's years, years never end. He's ever-living, he's always all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere. So Sam, this flies into the face of Muslim sensibilities of Allah walking among us. Yeah. How do you walk through, how do you navigate yeah. this water? Yeah, see this is the thing, you have to distinguish between the God of Islamic philosophy and the God of the Quran and the authentic son of Muhammad. Islamic philosophy The authentic son of Muhammad? The authentic sunnah of Sunnah, Muhammad. sunnah. The Islamic philosophy overemphasizes God's transcendence mm-hmm. to his eminence. Whereas if you read the Quran and if you read the narrations attributed to Muhammad, Allah is actually much more akin to the biblical understanding of God entering time and space and still remaining God than the God of Islamic philosophy. I can show you through the Quran where God enters into creation. Give me one. Okay, oh, yeah, well, if you open up the Quran, chapter 27, verses 7 to 9, if you get a Quran right there, we can look at it, but you'll see there that when Moses goes to the burning bush, mm-hmm. the burning bush story, it's recounted in the Quran. In the Quran, you'll find the same story mentioned. When he goes to the burning bush, he hears a voice from the tree, the fire that then consumed the tree, <clears throat> And the voice basically tells Moses that he is Allah, the Lord of all being. And he says, blessed is he who's in the fire, who's in the fire, and blessed is he who surrounds the fire. Hmm. Now my question to you, Khaldun, who's in the fire? That's chapter 27, verses 7 to 9 of the Quran. Sounds like Allah. Yeah. Moses wasn't in the fire. No. He wasn't in the tree. He wasn't in the bush. He wasn't in the fire. And who's surrounding the fire? Moses. So Allah is saying, blessed is Moses who's surrounding the fire, the tree, and blessed am I who's in the tree. So how can Allah squeeze himself into a, into a flame, into a tree, if the God of Islamic philosophy <clears throat> is so transcendent that he never interacts with his creatures? And then simply on the level of revelation, philosophically, if God doesn't interact with his creatures, how did he ever inspire any prophet with his message? That means there has to be direct contact, right? There has to be. Now, they'll, they'll try to bypass and say, well, it wasn't God who directly communicated his message to Moses. He did it through the medium of Angel Gabriel. But still, he has to get into contact with a creature <laughs> and speak directly to a creature in order to have that creature to be the medium of that revelation. So if you, if you press the Muslim <clears throat> to reason out the implications of his theology, God cannot speak to anyone if his view of God's transcendence is true. Because in order for God to even send down revelation from himself, there has to be an interaction with the divine and the creature. But if God is so transcendent that he can't do that, because again, you're saying he can't become flesh because he doesn't descend to that level and enter into creation. According then, to what? According to Islamic philosophy, not the Quran. Not the Quran itself. Right? Yeah, the Quran oh, has plenty so of passages of Allah appearing within time Like the example of the bush that you just Yes, gave. and another one is God's spirit, Ruh Allah. Mm-hmm. If you read the Quran carefully, the spirit of God is not a creature. The spirit of God emanates from God. It says he breathes out the spirit, so that means it originates from God. Chapter 19 in particular, so that the, I don't confuse the people listening. Chapter 19 of the Quran, Surah Al-Maryam, chapter of Mary, verses 16 to 21. It says that Allah sent His Spirit, Ruh, in Arabic, to Mary, the mother of our Lord, to announce to her the birth of her son. It says the Spirit appeared in the likeness of a perfect man. So when Mary saw the man, 
Unbeknownst to her, that was the Spirit of God appearing in human form. She thought it was a man trying to defile her, mm. defiling her. Mm -hmm. So the passage says that Mary said to him, I seek refuge with the all-merciful if you're God-fearing. If you fear God, stay away from me. Then he responds, I'm only a messenger of your Lord sent to give you a faultless son. So notice what we, what we have here. God's Spirit that emanates from God, that he breathes out, enters into time and space, appears in the likeness of a perfect man, human form, has a conversation with Mary, and she has a conversation with him, and he says, I'm sent to cause you to conceive Jesus, so he creates life. Hmm. So why is it that the Spirit of God can enter time and space, assume human form, and God cannot do so? Either we have to say the Spirit is more powerful than God, because he can do something that the Muslim God can't do, or the Spirit... <clears throat> is beneath the dignity of God in that he'll condescend to appear in the form of a man in creation, which Muslims say is less than holy and glorious. So now there's an aspect of God that does inglorious things, because remember, he's a part of God, right? Right. So how can the Spirit do something inglorious without this affecting God, because he's a part of God and inseparable from him? Or Islamic theology and philosophy simply wrong? Hmm. God can enter time and space. He can assume human form, even become man without ceasing to be God. Something that's not contradicted by any statement of the Quran or authentic right. Sunnah of Muhammad. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, if you're Muslim, listen to me. There's a reductionistic in the sense here. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. So forgive us for our brevity. Yes. But it's important just to at least emphasize that point. So we talked about the deity of Christ, yes. Jesus himself. We talked about the deity of the Holy Spirit, or Ruh Allah in Arabic, even in the Quran talks about that as well. Um, and the Father, of course, Father God takes on the characteristics of God. We don't really need to get into that. It seems to be self-evident. But what about the Trinity itself in Scripture? Yeah. There are people who try to point to 1 John 5, 7. And Muslims are aware of that passage and call its authenticity into question because I think you probably had that in mind, First John 5, 7. Right, well, I was thinking about Texas Receptus, yeah. the original passage, right, the King in James. The King James Version, it includes a passage that most, in fact, apart from the new King James Version, because it's a recently modern version and modern English version, all other modern translations of the Bible either remove it from the main body and relegate it to a footnote, or if they have it in the main text, they have a footnote. Now, what am I referring to? First John 5, 7 says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, Holy Ghost, again, is the Shakespearean way or the King James way of referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, is that a Trinitarian proof text? Well, even if you want to believe it is, Muslims are quick to point out that according to the manuscript evidence mm -hmm. and according to evangelical scholars, that is a spurious passage, a passage that was accidentally added into the main body of the text by a later scribe. Even Daniel Wallace would agree with yeah. that, wouldn't he? Now, uh, it's, it's not... <clears throat> This is not the time to go into the pros and cons of that position. No, we don't need to. All I would do is simply point out the inconsistency of the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness who brings this argument out. So I don't even argue for its authenticity or agree that it's inauthentic. Because what I like to do is to expose the underlying assumptions and their inconsistent way of arguing. Here's how I do it. Even Joe's Witnesses bring up that passage. So this, again, it's not just for Muslims. It's for Joe's Witnesses or Unitarians. I have a I New World Translation passage. right there. Yeah, because they'll tell you, see, that's an interpolation. That passage is the closest approximation mm -hmm. to the Trinity, and yet it's an interpolation. So I okay. say, okay, hold on. 
let me ask you the question. So you're saying, because it says the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, these three are one, that means they're one in essence. They'll say, yeah, if that passage was genuine scripture, then you got the Trinity in the nutshell in a succinct, uh, summarized fashion. I go, you sure? You sure that because it says these three are one, it means one in essence? Couldn't you argue it means that they're one in their witness? Mm-hmm. It's a unified witness. They agree. Right. Mm-hmm. They'll say no. I said, well, thank you for proving that Jesus claimed to be God. Why? Because in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Right? Hen, esmin. It's even the same, you know. Well, it's, it's the word one. So now, will you now admit to me that by saying that he's one with the Father, Jesus is claiming to be one in essence with the Father so that the two of them are the one God? They'll say, no, one doesn't mean one in essence. I go, thank you for exposing your inconsistency. Mm. Because even if I could show you that 1 John 5, 7 was genuine scripture, you would explain away the oneness as something other than being essentially one. You would tell me they're one in their witness. So how convenient of you to admit that one here, if it was true, means they're one God. But in John 10, 30, a passage no one disputes as far as his veracity is concerned. It's all the, it's 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 in every extent Greek manuscript of John that has it, where Jesus says, I and the Father one, you now conveniently say one doesn't mean one in essence. Hmm. It means they are unified in their purpose. But couldn't they mean one in one sense and one in a different sense, one meaning unity of a like a husband and wife, but another is a unity of a of a country where, as opposed one. to a unity of an essence. Which which passage? Well I'm saying couldn't they mean different things in general? So then why are you insisting that in 1 John 5, 7, it's one in essence, a passage that you deem to be spurious? How do you know that oneness there is not their unified witness? The ideology is coming to play here before the Because the context is talking about the testimony given in regards to the Son of God. Okay. That the Father testifies who Jesus is. Jesus testifies concerning himself and so does the Spirit. So why assume one here means one in essence as opposed to that they're unified in their witness? Because it's a convenient expedient of saying, here's a passage that speaks to the Trinity, but it's an interpolation. I saw you do a brilliant analysis in my apologetics class the other day where um, the Pharisees come before Christ. Yes. And they convict him. They say, they take up stones to stone him. And Jesus asks, why? Yeah. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Yeah. Expand yeah. on that passage yeah. where... Um, John 10, you're referring to again, yeah. verse 30. Because most Christians, when they want to demonstrate the deity of Christ, they'll quote John 10, 30, I am the Father, one. And then the anti-Trinitarian has a convenient response. They'll say, well, if Jesus is one with the Father in essence, so are the disciples. Because Jesus says in John 17, 11, mm-hmm. 21 to 23, that the disciples are one as the Father and the Son are one, right? Right. So here's the problem with the Christian witness. We start at verse 30 when we're supposed to start in reality, verse 27. So now if you want to turn there. Now this is though. 10, 27 to 30. But apparently this is the New Revised Standard Version. That's why That's actually Bart Ehrman's favorite translation. <laughs> Bart Ehrman, I want to get into him there. So where do we start here, Sam? I'm in okay, John not, 10 John now. John 10, 30, I am the Father one. Start at 27 to 30. Okay, let's read that. Uh, let's see it in context here, of course. Oh, we have to actually read something in context? Yeah, scary. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of my father's hand. The father and I are one. Now the verb in Greek are, esmen means we are. So clearly they're not the same person. It's plural. We are, but we're one. 
One in what sense? You don't need to guess. One in what sense? In essence, not in just unity as in a, a marriage partner or a government. Yes. In the context, Jesus already told you that we are his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. My voice. So emphasize that. Uh-huh. And then he says, I give them eternal life. All of them, no matter how numerous, no one can pluck them out of my hand. Now, my question to you before I unpack the meaning and why the Jews correctly understood he was claiming to be God, though he was a man. What kind of attributes must Jesus possess in order to guarantee the eternal preservation of every single believer that belongs to his flock? Because remember, eternal life, biblically speaking, refers to moral incorruptibility and physical indestructibility. He's going to make us immortal and morally incorruptible so that we never sin against him ever again. What kind of attributes must Jesus possess to give this kind of quality life to all believers, no matter how numerous, no matter how many, no matter where they're at? Because he has to preserve them. From the beginning of time, across all time and space, they would have to be omnipotence. He has to be, right? But also, when omniscience be required? Because yeah, he has to know, to know all about and he'll know exactly who they are in their hearts. So in the context itself, it's obvious a oneness in ability and power, therefore a oneness in essence, right? That's right. But to further drive the point home, he says, my sheep, they're my sheep. They're in my hand. No one plucks them out of my hand. And they hear my voice, and I give them eternal life, right? That's right. Go to Psalm 95. But notice, hold up before we go, it says, What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. He seemed to be equating his hand with the Father's. Yes, but we want to emphasize how that Jesus is claiming to be God. Well, go to where? Go to Psalm 95, 6 to 8. That is me turning the wonderful scriptures. Now I'm Psalm 95, 6 through 8. Let's do it. See the language of Jesus. That's right. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Okay, so wait. The sheep of Yahweh's hand. And then what does it say? Read down what it says. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Whose voice are they supposed to listen Yahweh, to? Yahweh, God. Yahweh. Whose sheep are they? His, the Lord's. And under whose hand of protection are they? The Lord's. But then Jesus said, my sheep in my hand hear my voice. Mm-hmm. You don't get any clearer example of Jesus taking the very language mm-hmm. that the Old Testament authors attributed to, to Yahweh and applying it to his own person. But then he says he gives eternal life, right? Right. And they shall never perish? Deuteronomy 32, 39, my friend. So now you'll see why the Jews correctly understood that Jesus, our Lord, was claiming to be God in the flesh, though not the Father. Mm -hmm. They could see he's not the Father, but he's claiming to be one with the Father in essence, and therefore, as a man, he's claiming to be God. A man who's God. Now notice Deuteronomy 32, 39. Jesus says, I personally give them eternal life. And it says in verse 39, And now that I, even I, am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. No one can deliver them from my hand. I'm really confused. Here God says, I'm the one who gives life and no one can deliver out of my hand. But in John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give not just life, but eternal life and no one can deliver them out of my hand. Hmm. What does Jesus sound like? Sounds like he's either playing the role of God or he is. So now 31, 33, that's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And then Jesus says in 32, many good works I've shown you from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And 33, they say, for good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy. And you, a man, make yourself out to be God. 
because they knew the Old Testament, they knew the language, they knew that this Jew is speaking the language of God, language that only can be ascribed to God, but he's applying it to himself. So they knew he's not the Father, right. but that he's just as much God as the Father is, and yet he's a, he's a man. And then Jesus answered, and this is, I think, where the apologists on the other end of the spectrum use this. But Jesus answered and said, it is not written. Is it not your, written? Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. Mm-hmm. And if those to whom the word of God came were called gods, the scripture cannot be annulled. And can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said I am God's son? Mm-hmm. So this seemed to be used by many apologists, the Muslim Jehovah's Witness or others, or anti-Trinitarian. Exactly. They say, here, Jesus is saying, hey, others are called God too. I'm just saying I'm just one of the many. Yeah, the, yeah. That seems to be a real um, of a stretch here, but go ahead, Sam. No, Jump that, on that this. actually ignores the passage he's citing. Here he quoted Psalm 82, verse 6. To, ju- to justice to the passage, you have to read the entire psalm. It's only eight verses. Mm-hmm. It's talking about the true God entering into judgment with the gods who were given authority to rule the earth. That's the context. Okay. God is about to judge them and destroy them because they've corrupted the earth. They've spread mischief. They've spread evil and wickedness. They've helped the wicked and oppressed the righteous the poor. And so God is now fed up. It's a context. It's it's a psalm of judgment. Mm. Judgment on the gods who were given authority to rule the world. But instead of ruling it with equity and justice, righteousness, they have helped the evil prosper, they've corrupted justice and oppressed the righteous and the poor. And God says, I'm fed up. So now let's see where Jesus was quoting from by looking at Psalm 82, 6 and 7. He was citing, he cited a part of verse 6, but let's read Psalm 82, 6 and 7. I say you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. So it's a context of judgment against them, right? Yes. So what is our Lord trying to prove and establish from this? Well, the psalm is an inspired psalm. Mm -hmm. The Jews believe that this was written by inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit of God. So if you have the psalmist by inspiration calling even wicked, evil, corrupt rulers, gods, then will you accuse them of blasphemy? You can't, right? No. Because to accuse him of blasphemy means you're accusing the one who inspired him of blaspheming by calling wicked, evil rulers gods. So that's his point. Scripture can't be nullified. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be broken. It cannot be questioned as to its divine authority and veracity. So if you have a psalm calling evil rulers gods, even though they're evil, they're wicked, they're corrupt, and God is going to destroy them, how dare you accuse me of blasphemy for saying I'm the Son of God when I am perfectly one with the Father and only do what He does and the miracles show that I am who I claim to be, the Son of God who can do whatever God does because I'm one with Him in essence. Amazing. That's His point. It's not, his point is not that I'm like uh, them. Yeah. He's saying if even mm-hmm. they can be called gods and they're wicked, how dare you level an accusation of blasphemy against me when I'm proving to you by the miracles that you yourselves are witnessing. I'm one with the Father, and I can do all that He does because like the Father, I happen to be God, possessing the same ability He does to get the job done. That's His point. Wow. And you know what you're doing here, what I appreciate about you, Sam? You're not just conjecturing. You're not just quoting a, a, a commentary or having some brilliant type of analysis. You're actually reading the context from which this is actually quoted and, and quoting what Jesus actually may have quoted in the past and connected that yeah, back. Exactly. I love it. Yeah, it's very, there's a lot of meat in John 10. And that's so why, much. Actually, if you continue reading, th- th- 37, 39, mm-hmm. instead of saying, okay, Jesus, we see you're not claiming to be God, it says, when he had finished saying this, mm-hmm. they tried all the more to seize him. Mm-hmm. Why? 
if he was denying that he's God, why would they try to seize him all the more in verse 39? Let me read 38. Yeah. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that I, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they tried to arrest him again, Why? but he escaped from their hands. Why would they do that? If Jesus was saying, look, guys, I'm not saying I'm God. I'm you just have the man. let him go. So oh, we understand. You just I'm just a man authorized yeah. to speak on God's behalf with his authority, just like those other so-called gods. Mm. Why then do they want to kill him all, all the more? Because that's the exact opposite point he's making. Yes, I am a man, but I'm more than that. I am God, one with the Father in essence, which is why I have the same ability and power he has to preserve all believers and give them eternal life. And therefore, your accusation that I'm blaspheming holds no merit because the miracles testify that I speak the truth. And if even wicked rulers can be called gods who are wicked and God will kill dead, how dare you accuse me of blaspheming when I'm proving to you I am all that I claim to be, the Son who's one with the Father. Praise God. Wow. That's the point. That's him. Yeah. Hmm. Let's go to the final one. Yep. So we talked about the, tr- uh, the, the, the Trinity. We talked about the sonship of Christ yes. or the, the, the God-man. I want to talk about the scripture. Yes. The Bible itself. Yes. Is it reliable? Is it historically something that we can hold on to as a pillar in our lives? I'm convinced it's the most historically reliable book in the ancient world. Yes, it is. It's but not can a you... statement of faith. It's a fact because of the enormous wealth of manuscript evidence supporting its preservation, mm-hmm. as well as the citations we have of the books of the Bible and the writings of the church fathers from the first I would say 400 years. Some would say 300 years, but let's 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 extend it to the 5th century. But are you convinced, Sam, in all your research and doing this for the last 10 to 15 years, maybe yes. even longer, that the scriptures itself, or themselves, do not have contain any error, meaning yeah. the term, let me be clear here, error in a sense that it doesn't have not inspiration, where it can be inspired to works to salvation, as some of the Catholic views will say, but inerrant in the sense that it's not, it doesn't make any claims of falsehood in areas of anything else, science, archaeology, even literature. Yeah. If it points to something outside of itself, it's pointing to something that corresponds to reality. Yes. Yeah. Is yeah. that the case? Do you hold to that position? Yeah, if so, course, how far do you go with it? Yeah, I, I do believe in inspiration, errancy, and fallibility of scriptures. But you see, the thing is, we're throwing terms, and we have to define the terms, and we have to define those terms in light of the historical, cultural context in which the Bible's written. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The Bible's not a textbook about science, but it doesn't contradict scientific facts, but even that has to be qualified. Let me explain my point. Let's say God is sending you to a community that are convinced the earth is flat. And if you say that the earth is round, they'll use that as a reason to reject your claim of being a prophet, because after all, God who made the earth flat knows that it's flat. So if you're speaking on God's behalf and you're telling me it's a sphere, that's proof God isn't speaking through you because you know better. What, what do you do in a situation like that? Do you try to convince them their view of the earth is wrong? It's not flat. It is a sphere. Or do you bypass that and accommodate them because your point is not to get them to have a correct view of the shape of the earth, but get the message of salvation across? What's more important? Which one's more weighty? Of course. Of course, of course it's more with their souls or so whether they're their is, geographic knowledge. So if God is sending prophets to a people that have a wrong view of the way science works, let's say the earth to them is flat and the earth is the, is, is stationary and the sun is revolving. A heliocentric model. Uh, so so let's say that's it. their view. Mm-hmm. How wise would it be, how beneficial would it be to have God 
inspire Prophet to try to convince them otherwise when that kind of knowledge does nothing for them as far as salvation is concerned. I can believe in a flat earth and still go to heaven, <laughs> or I can believe the earth is round and still go to hell. So, does God in his love condescend? You can even vote for Trump and go to heaven? You see, that's the thing, right? <laughs> Sacrilegious, right? But you get my point? Yeah. Does God in his infinite love for his creatures mm -hmm. condescend to meet them where they're at mm -hmm. and accommodate his speech to make sense to them in order to get the message yes. across? Yes, yes, So that has to be taken into account when you're dealing with the context of Scripture. Okay. It makes no sense for someone to go around trying to convince someone the earth is round if they believe the earth is flat because they could use that as a pretext against the person as being an inspired spokesperson of God. In fact, I'll prove it to you. How many times do you find atheists looking at passages that they think teach a flat earth to reject the authority of Scripture? I have a colleague of mine who has a book called The Skeptic Bible. Mm -hmm. And the entire thing is highlighting what are the, quote, errors of the Scripture. It's looking for problems. You get my point? Seeking for them. But now one of the problems they'll say is, look, look, these descriptions of the earth, it's, it's, it presupposes a flat earth. Right. But that's proving my or point. Or a three-layer type of system. But see, that's proving my point. See, they see it as an error because they know better. But if I'm speaking to the ancients and I tell them the earth is a sphere and they think it's a flat, then they'll level that same objection against the author at that time that this person's doing today. And I wonder, five, a thousand years from now, how much of them will laugh at our understanding of the you world, even at the quantum level. See? So either God is going to have to waste his entire time in trying to change the entire culture to have the proper view of science and how the universe functions, mm -hmm. or... He's going to bypass that because you can have the wrong view of science and still get saved if you hear the gospel. So you can have somebody like Paul believe, not believe in things like germs or bacteria or viruses. Don't even know they ex even exist. Yeah. And if you ask him about it, he'll look at you like you're nuts. Um, but at the same time, he will not utter words that will deny these exist the existence yeah, of these yeah, entities. Yeah, that's what right? you find in Scripture. You find Scripture where they're speaking the language of the people. You have to take that in consideration. But it doesn't make any claims about science saying this is it this is what the earth is like and it's hey then tell us one major scripture that is used by many um, apologists in Islam or other otherwise so here's some errors in the scriptures I've seen 101 Bible errors uh, online and a yeah. bunch of others where there's I went to a Muslim apologist a Christian where they were debating each other and he literally took out a scroll and rolled it in front of the audience right, right. The <laughs> it's, it's, more, it's yeah. more of a theatrical thing of all the errors hey. most of the, of the genealogy yeah, that was that was Ahmadi dot and then Zachary and I, right, I'm protege, it. That's he right. did it his protege. Some people won't know who they are, but you'll find them on mm -hmm. YouTube for the shock effect. Right. Because what you have in Matthew 1, you have a condensed genealogy of Christ. Mm -hmm. And Luke 3, you have a more comprehensive genealogy. Now, Christians have answered these so-called discrepancies for centuries. The bottom line is this. If you believe the Bible is corrupt, no matter what answer I give you, it's not going to be good enough. But if you believe the Bible is inspired, preserved Word of God, no matter what objection I raise against it, won't convince you. So, so we reality, get the benefit of a doubt? How do we come to a common ground? Well, that's the thing. In reality, just want to make a point, it, it comes down to the assumptions, the presuppositions of the person when he's dealing with the text. Now, I believe the Bible is inspired, so I'm going to try to harmonize. Of course Someone's so. hostile to the Bible, harmonization is not permissible. So what I do is I, I try to bypass that and go to the heart of the matter. So now it's who's asking me the question. In other words, if it's an atheist, I wouldn't even deal with the symptom. I'll go to the heart of the matter, the problem, because he's presupposing logical consistency. That if there's a contradiction, then it's false. So he's presupposing moral absolutes, 
logic as a metaphysical reality and naturalism and truth exists yeah, I, how can he can't count for all of that in his worldview? can't so why would I want to adjust a symptom when I need to go to the heart of the problem and cut it, cut the cancer out so you're going right to the presupposition with facts right so hey why do you assume that if something contradictory it's false where are you getting your understanding of truth let's see you see? And with That's Islam? With, atheists. with Islam, very different approach. Within Islam, you believe the Quran is the word of God. I don't. Why are you going against your authority, what you believe to be divine revelation, attacking my Bible? Because the Quran goes out of its way to affirm that the Bible is the incorruptible revelations of God, and that Jews and Christians are to turn to their scriptures, the scriptures they possess at the time of Muhammad, to test the claims of Muhammad, whether he was a true prophet or not. By saying my Bible is corrupt, you're saying Muhammad didn't know what he's talking about. And I agree with you, but for other reasons. So if you disagree with Muhammad's view of the Bible, then stop being a Muslim, and then we can talk about Bible discrepancies. But Muslims will say it wasn't the time of Muhammad that it was consistent, it was clear. It's after that that well, got corrupted. Well, that actually digs the hole much deeper for them because we have biblical manuscripts that are before, during, and after Muhammad that are uniform. So when did these changes take place so that we don't have what they originally wrote or what they were reading at the time of Muhammad? So it depends on my audience again. Okay. Who am I dealing with? I see. If I'm dealing with... You mentioned Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Bart Ehrman himself admits that the great majority of the original autographs are recoverable. He even said that mm -hmm. we're able to get back to at least 95% of the originals, what they wrote. The 5% difference, the original reading will be there in the variants. It's just determining with absolute certainty which of the two or three variants happens in the original. So he would admit that we basically have what they wrote. And proof of it is, any book that he writes telling you what Paul believed presupposes he knows what Paul originally wrote. Otherwise, how can he tell you what Paul believed? <laughs> exactly. And you know what? Reading Bart Ehrman just strengthened my faith. Me too. <laughs> yeah, that's textual Bible. criticism in yeah, others. He it's strengthened my faith in his book on Jesus Interrupted. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the book of uh, with contradiction, but the book right. on uh, misquoting uh, Jesus, Jesus is a big one. I use how Jesus became God. Those books actually strengthened me in my faith because he makes concessions and admissions that actually affirm the historical preservation veracity of the scriptures, and that the earliest followers of Jesus, Peter being one of them, was convinced that God raised Jesus physically to life and ascended physically to heaven and started ruling as God in the flesh because he had a vision that convinced him Christ conquered death. Hmm. He says Peter and Mary Magdalene, and he admits that for Paul. So he's admitting that the Christian movement began because some of Jesus' followers, like Peter and Mary Magdalene, and then an enemy of the faith, were convinced on the basis of visions, God raised Jesus physically alive into heaven, and now Jesus is ruling as God. Amen. And this is a story meaning that this is how Christianity began. Otherwise, how did it begin? Thank you. So the Muslims who appeal to Bart Ehrman, if you really want to go the route of Bart Ehrman, the concessions he makes as an historian, which he has to make if he wants... The and his more scholarly work he does, and his more popular work yeah, he he's more... To. But uh, even the popular book, he, he makes statements that will tell you, he basically admits that we pretty much have what they wrote. Yeah. And even the variant ratings that he highlights are variant ratings that the church has known for 300 plus years. He's not, it's nothing new nothing to people new. in apologetics no. or in theology. It's new to the layperson who's not introduced to this field. Of course, yeah. It's fodder for those who already want to attack. Exactly. They're, 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 they're 
foaming at the mouth, waiting to find nice. something. Give me something to attack with. And here it is. Okay, so with um, so we talked about uh, the the sonship of Christ. Yes. Uh, we talked about the Trinity. We talked about the historical reliability of scriptures, how to approach that for people from different perspectives. Give us one thing in scripture. I don't know if you want to allude to it, but one of my favorites is the prophetic um, utterances from the book of Daniel yeah, for the coming of, a, of, a, of a, uh, Alexander the Great and the splitting of his kingdoms and the rising of the Roman Empire. I thought that was just, it blows my mind for the historical accuracy of that. Did you want to point out are something? You, are you asking me what evidence? Can Give us one. You know, yeah. We don't have the, the... Evidence to point to that the Bible is the Word of God? It's something not just historically reliable, but also something that does point it to... Well, I'll go with what the divine. New Testament does. The New Testament, if you want to see how the apostles and their companions prove the truth of Christianity, predict the prophecy of the coming Messiah's death and resurrection and the historical Jesus' fulfillment of those. That is their apologetic. Read the New Testament. They're always pointing to Christ's death and resurrection in front of witnesses who saw him alive and willing to die for it in fulfillment of prophecies. Would you talk about Isaiah 52, 53? Is that what you're referring to? Isaiah 53 is one of the those suffering? prophecies. Yes, suffering? That's, or my point, that's the whole point. How did the apostles go about proving the truth of Christianity? Obviously, they were accompanied with supernatural, miraculous signs and wonders, but that wasn't good enough. Because both the Old and New Testaments say that even false prophets, false messiahs, will be empowered by Satan and evil spirits to do miraculous things. The Lord himself says that. Matthew 24, 23 to 25. Many false prophets, false Christ will arise, doing signs and wonders to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. So signs and wonders in of themselves are not enough. Sam, it always gets me when people tell, if God would just appear to me, if God would just show me, I would be like, no! Jesus himself said they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't have them, they won't believe if a man raised from the dead. Exactly. So that's the point, Khaldun. The point is we need to model our apologetics after the apostles Mm. who were inspired and filled with the Spirit to do what they did. Now, how do they go about proving the, the truth of Christianity? The resurrection of Jesus in fulfillment of prophecies made centuries before this event took place. So the best defense of Christianity is predictive prophecies. Prophecies speaking of the coming Messiah's death and resurrection. Give us one. We can look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1, all the way to 8. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the, you know, the resurrection. In verses 1, 8. Right. But he puts it in the context of Scripture. But what specific Scripture is it quoting? It doesn't. He just tells you according to the scriptures. So well, now your duty as a serious student of the Bible is go find those prophecies. Right? <laughs> I wish I was on the road of a mason to hear all those, right? That's what he starts it with. Yeah. If you want, for the sake of time, just read it to four. Everyone, First Corinthians, what, 15? 15 verses 1 to 8, but you can read it to 4 if you want to see how he defends the truth. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I have proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, which also you stand, though which also you are being saved through which you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. That's right. For I have handed on to you as a first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the, with scriptures. the scriptures. And then this he is, gives you a list of eyewitnesses to the resurrection because if you read in verse 6 he says he was seen by more than 500 brethren Mm -hmm. most of whom are still alive at the time of the writing right so do you see his apologetic prophecies that Jesus the Messiah would die for our sins be raised to life immortal on the third day and then eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the historical Jesus 
That's the apologetic of the New Testament. Where specifically is he referring to this in the Old Testament? Well, what Paul doesn't tell you specifically. No, he, he doesn't, doesn't. But give, give us a general one. Well, well, Are we talking about the Psalm? Which, no, well, the most famous of which that speaks to the vicarious nature of Jesus' death is Isaiah 52, verses, verse 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Because Isaiah 53 doesn't start at 53.1. It starts at Isaiah 52, verse 13. And that was added later on by other Christians who tried to um, delineate the scriptures. The uh, uh, separation of scripture. Oh, yeah, yeah, the chapter um, divisions. Chapter, the chapter later, divisions, later. right. Yes, it's, it's later. It's It comes from, I think, the medieval period. But right. Okay, 52, where am I? Verse 13, it's a long one, all the way to 53.12. It's right okay. there. Yeah, we can't read it all, of course, but... Basically, it's a suffering servant passage, yes. which talks about God's very servant himself. Verse 13 starts with his exaltation, but then 53 explains that before the exaltation, he's going to have to experience humiliation. The one who is humiliated, put to death, suffered for the sins of his people, who was put to grief and buried, will see the light of life, and God will highly exalt him. He wasn't just buried or he was killed. He was also bruised. Yes. He was pierced. He was put in the grave of a borrowed friend. Wow, if we're not talking about Jesus, who yes. are we speaking about? But then talk about his glorification, because verse 13 says, See, my servant... Has acts wisely will be high and lifted will up. be high and lifted up and shall be so very here's high. The exaltation of the servant after suffering a humiliating death, mm. his death, resurrection, and ascension, exaltation, all in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 53. So this is 12. presupposing the audience you're speaking to are a Hebrew loving people who love the scriptures, yes. and you can use this as an apologetic. You can use for that them. for the atheist and agnostic who has to explain this detailed prophecy as something coincidental or luck because we have a copy of Isaiah 53 that's written about 125 years before the, the birth of Christ Dead Sea Scrolls so close to where I was born genuine, genuine prophecy before Jesus mm. so now they're going to have to explain it either they have to explain that the New Testament writings were written after the fact to make it like Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53 but then no serious reputable historian or scholar denies that Jesus was killed via crucifixion or denies that his followers who knew him claimed to have seen him alive and were willing to die for the fact for mm. that fact. So that's just even Barnerman says one of the best attested facts and indisputable fact is that Jesus was killed by crucifixion. And he admits that his own followers, at least two of them, Peter and Mary Magdalene saw a vision that convinced them God raised them physically. That started Christianity. So that's a historical fact. So now, if you're an atheist and agnostic, obviously don't believe in God or are not convinced there's enough evidence for God, how do you explain such a detailed prophecy that was written over 500 years, in fact, over 700 years before the birth of Christ? 700, right. And we have a copy of this prophecy that's written about 125 years before the birth of Christ, pointing to someone dying for the sins of the world, specifically the people of God, and being raised to life. And then here comes Jesus claiming that's why he's here, to die for our sins, and God would raise him. And then his father's claiming the tomb is empty, we saw the alive, and they're willing to die for it. Wow. And this is what we talked about earlier off the show, which is the hero of a thousand faces, yeah. where this mythos is in every story God has God placed. putting the kernel of truth. Everywhere he's dropped it like seeds across the planet and all of history, yeah. pointing us to his son. Yes. Wow! So this is what we call myth historicized. Uh -huh. The myth that's real. The myth that became real. I mean, Jesus. The myth that got nails and blood under his fingernails. Hallelujah. All right, let's go to the final one. Sure, what is What that? on earth is a Christian? Many Muslims and others will argue there's so many different varieties, so many different yeah. denominations, uh, so many different uh, variations within the variations yes. themselves. How do you even 
qualify to what even essentially is a believer. I, yeah, I don't want to make it overly simplistic, nor do I want to make it overly complicated. Okay. Because obviously there are core essential doctrines definitional to Christianity that a person must affirm and not outright deny to be a true Christian, because anyone can claim to be a Christian. But at the very heart of the Gospels, a Christian is one who submits to the rule of Christ in his life. The very word Christian means little Christ. Little Christ, yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone who's following Christ. So a Christian really is someone who says, I am not Lord of my life, Jesus is, and I embrace your rule over my life, and I will live in a manner that conforms to your kingdom rule in my life. So in other words, it's making Jesus king and Lord of your life. As Lewis would say, I lay down my arms. Or the alpha wolf who bears his neck to the other wolf. Yeah. Right, complete submission. Yes, right. And obviously, no one's going to perfectly submit to the rule of Christ this side of eternity, but so. we strive. And I want to be clear, though. I don't want people to think I'm preaching faith and work salvation. No. Our striving is not what gets us saved. Our striving to make Jesus the king of our life, mm-hmm. Lord over our life, is a sign that we belong to him. And because we belong to him, what he has done will save us to the uttermost because of his perfect righteousness and sacrificial death that we are now trusting in and hoping in. And he is the one who draws us to himself. That's Jesus right. said himself, no one draws me, no one comes to me unless the Father himself draws right. him. Now, like I said, I can make this overly simple because that definition includes Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. The, to make it a little more meatier, when I say embracing the rule of Christ, submitting to Jesus as Lord and King over your life, the question is, which Jesus? Right, and that comes to the, the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of Mormons, the Jesus of Islam, the Jesus of secular uh, secularists, the Jesus of of New Age movement. Marcus Borg and all So that even thing. saying submitting to Jesus, you have to submit to the right Jesus. So you have to know who and what He is, Demon. and that's what Jesus said to His disciples: Who do the people say that I am? Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say that you're Elijah or John come back from the dead. But then he looked at his disciples and said, but who do you say that I, the Son of Man, Making it very personal. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mm. Matthew 16, verse 16. And then Jesus' response is verse 17. Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Mm. So you have to submit to the right Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, who is the Christ of the New Testament, and that Jesus is the God-man. How do we know that, Sam? Do we actually have to read? Of course. (laughs) Or faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And Anselm said that is how it is for the true believer. First I believe and then I understand. And we argue philosophically that's impossible. I said, no, you have to have a presupposition, a full template in your mind to even believe even the English language of logic, of rhetoric, of of, of connection, of genealogy of words and and hierarchy of language, hierarchy of thought processes and logic before you even accept it. It's a given. So first you do have to believe before you can Exactly. You have to believe certain things are given in order to then work from those principles or those assumptions. Otherwise, even language becomes meaningless. Right. Discourse becomes meaningless. At the bottom end of the day, Sam, yes. on a personal level, I'm talking to you man to man here. Yeah. I'm coming down to the close. We're landing this plane. Yes. Why Jesus instead of any other world leader or God or gods or prophets or whomever? Why Jesus, what is it about Jesus for you that makes you continue to follow him, even through going through all the trials in your own life, brother? 
Apart from the fact that he truly existed and walked this earth, and he truly died, was truly buried, and he truly left the tomb empty, and we have eyewitnesses to that, because if he's risen, that's its end of the, end of the story. He's alive. He is real, more real than you can imagine. Is because I know him personally, because he knows me. I just, I'm not just reading about him. Hmm. It's not someone I read about. I experience him daily, and he is the most real presence, real thing in my life, more real than anything around me, more real than my children, more real than their mother, more real than you sitting here. His presence fills me and sustains me, so I know my Redeemer lives. Mm, on a and personal he level. loves me more than I can imagine. Even though the Great. trials of life. Oh, man. You know, Sam, um, a few weeks, it was a, few, it was a couple months ago, I was in my... No, it was more than that. <laughs> a few months before that. I was in my daughter's room saying goodnight to her. I talked to her in. And I uh, said, goodnight. Shut the light off. She looked at me and said, Daddy? Daddy? So I said, yes. She said, I love you. Yes, eh? I stopped there for a moment, Sam. And I, I don't know what it was, but it was something of almost what theologians would call a theophany. Yeah. I felt the hand of God on my hand, my shoulder telling me, here I am. I placed this little precious one in your life. That's right. And I'm here showing you my magnificent presence. That this, there is more to the life than just this physical flesh. And I have designed this and look and glorify me by loving her. And it was just an amazing experience for me of a transcendent nature. Of feeling the presence of Christ in my life through my, through my daughter. That old song, that old cliche, you ask me how I know he lives because he lives in my heart. Hmm. Those words are more true than a person can imagine. And only those who've tasted and seen that the Lord Jesus is good can amen that. Amen, brother. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. And 1 Peter 2.3, talking about those who gave their life to Jesus, you have come and have tasted and know the Lord is good. You ask me how I know he lives. I know my Lord Jesus lives because he lives in my heart. He is my heart and my heart is his throne. You have to experience him. If all you do is intellectualize, him, uh, intellectualize about him, then you know of him, but you will not truly know how real he is until you say, Lord, Here's my heart, make it your own. And then you're going to experience Jesus in the most real way, more real than what you see and touch with your physical senses. Right. He lives, and I know because he lives in my heart. So thank you, Lord Jesus. We love thank you. Thank you, Sam. This has been a, a time that we can really reflect upon who this God is. And this is only made possible because he has designed it that way Amen. before the foundations of the earth. Sam, thank you for bringing me to the brother. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here to serve you for the sake of Jesus. Amen.